Welcome to the Leader Think Podcast, where we discuss personal growth, human performance, and culture change. This is your host, Philip Grison. Thank you for joining me on this path. I hope you enlighten others along the way. Hey everyone, Happy New Year. It's that time of year where the R words start to surface. Resolutions, reinvention, maybe even redemption or something like that. But today I want to talk about another R word, restoration. Restoration is something there is a need for in safety performance and our personal lives. It's a concept that should be part of your accountability process at work, but it's also a concept we should think about in our personal lives. It's relevant to dealing with loss and grief or managing workers violating safety rules. When you think about how American culture deals with crime, we are pretty good at retribution, but not so good at restoration. When someone is found guilty of a crime, we have specific punishments laid out for us. If you want to Google the maximum penalty for specific crimes, you can easily find this information. There's clarity to the maximum punishment. But how are both victims and offenders to be restored? That restoration process lacks a little clarity. There are definitely examples of restoration in our judicial system, meetings with the offender and the victim to try to come to terms with each other. But as a whole, restoration is still somewhat lacking in our world. It's not as clear or used as often as retribution. When a worker commits a safety crime, we tend to have clear punishments laid out in our safety policies. They are not always managed or delivered with clarity, but the words are there, on paper, in the safety manual. We usually have some type of disciplinary policy laid out for us. But what about restoration? How do we restore the offender when they do something wrong? What about the victim in an accident? Is there a section in the safety manual that addresses restoration? Is restoration lacking in our safety management process? Some of you may be thinking it's not even a part of it. So what exactly is restoration? A simple example goes like this. If a criminal destroys a fence, some cultures dole out retribution and make the offender pay for the fence. In a restorative culture, the offender would rebuild that fence. They would fix what they broke, but they would also learn something in that process. They would be forced to learn how to repair what they broke. After destroying, they would learn to rebuild. They would not only restore what they destroyed, they would restore themselves in that process. Sometimes this does happen in safety performance. You probably know someone who had an incident and the organization moved them into the safety profession. I've heard that story a lot in my work. Someone was a worker. They suffered an injury at work that changed them. The organization moved them into a safety role. And then that story, how they were injured, becomes a method for pulling on heartstrings. That incident becomes a story to influence other workers to do the right thing told by the one who was injured, told by the victim. It's an example of restoration that does happen sometimes in our industry. But this concept could be taken further, given more structure, and utilized more often. 
When workers commit a safety crime, how do we restore them, even if no injury occurs? For this to work, we would need a deep understanding of human performance concepts and system influences. But assuming we do, and assuming we are learning how our systems influence workers, we could also include them in the restoration process. They could be a part of not only helping us restore our systems, but through this work, we could also restore the workers themselves. You know, there's this common misconception that human performance means people aren't accountable for their actions anymore. But it's not true. What is true is that in good human performance, we change what people are held accountable for. Holding people accountable for restoration is good accountability. When you commit a safety crime, you are held accountable for helping the organization restore their flawed systems. And you help restore yourself in that process. If a worker commits a safety crime, they are accountable for helping the organization change their systems that led to that crime. They are accountable for coming up with ideas on how to improve that system. They are accountable for doing the micro-experimentation of trying those system changes out to refine them before they are fully implemented. They are also accountable for telling their story. Doing those things is a form of accountability, but it is also more in line with restorative justice. If workers did something risky because they didn't have the right equipment, then they would be part of the conversation for revising our needs assessment. They would also participate in a future needs assessment to make sure we are doing the right things the right way, not missing things that they know we need, forcing them to be part of that conversation and part of that process is accountability, but it restores them too and it restores the system all at the same time, they move from being the offender to the fixer. Todd Conklin talks about restoration in this way. When an incident occurs, we should ask these questions. Who was hurt? What do they need? And who is responsible for meeting those needs? These questions should be a part of our safety restoration process. It's focused on the victim of an event, but a good place to start a restorative conversation. When an incident occurs, how does the safety policy clearly define who is responsible for answering these questions? Who is responsible for meeting those needs? And who is responsible to make sure it gets done? We can take this conversation further and ask some questions for the offender in any event. How have they been hurt? What do they need, and who is responsible for meeting those needs? Now, this is a tough one. When someone commits a safety crime, we tend to label them as the offender. But when we do that, we, when we create that label for them, we tend to not care as much. We tend to not care how they have been hurt or what their restorative needs are. We tend to focus on how they should be punished. Our subconscious brain normally points us toward retribution instead of restoration. And that is one of the greatest barriers to restorative justice.
Remember how most culture improvement efforts fail due to not addressing the emotional components? That emotional element exists here. In any event where one or more people play the role of the victim and another human plays the role of the offender, our brain tends to want some sort of retribution. Our brain tends to want the offender to pay for the hurt that they caused. In reality, especially in the safety world, the offender is hurting too. There's this undefined line that people have between sins that should be punished and mistakes that should be forgiven. This individualized view we tend to have of the two has a great effect on which form of accountability we choose, retribution or restoration. The difference between a sin that should be punished and a mistake that should be forgiven varies greatly between people. There are many factors that influence our personal beliefs on the difference between sins and mistakes. It's not clean. It's very messy. It makes me think about the fundamental attribution error and how it can go both ways. In the fundamental attribution error, we tend to be more forgiving of ourselves than we are of others. For example, I might believe that I was late to the meeting because I have a lot going on. The other guy was late because he's lazy. We tend to forgive ourselves more because we know the depth of our character more. We know all the responsibilities we are trying to juggle in our lives. We rarely know everything going on in the other person's life. We judge most harshly what we have the least information on. So what could be viewed as a mistake that I made could easily be viewed as a sin when someone else does the same thing. I know I'm being extreme here with words like sin versus mistakes, but I hope you get the point. The depth of our knowledge of people and situations, or the lack thereof, can influence us to define behaviors as sins or mistakes. On average, we tend to move the needle towards sin the less we know. We move that needle toward mistake the more we know. But there's another argument here that goes against everything I just said. Sometimes, the better you know someone, the more harshly you will judge them. The less you know them, the more forgiving you will be. If your brother-in-law is an addict, you might judge them more harshly due to the long history you've had with them, all of the pain and trauma you have witnessed their loved ones and your loved ones experience. Over years or decades can build up a ton of resentment. You might watch them attempt rehab, relapse, and think those judgmental thoughts like they will never change, they're a lost cause, or maybe something harsher, like they are just evil at the core. We do this because we experience the hurt of their sins or their mistakes, however we choose to define their behaviors. We may be more forgiving of an addict we don't know, thinking remorseful thoughts about how they need some help and our society doesn't do the greatest job of helping people with addiction. The more we know someone, we might be more forgiving 
when we know their character. We could define their behavior as a mistake instead of a sin because we know them well. But it is also true that if we were on the receiving end of the consequences of their behavior, we might define their behavior as a sin instead of a mistake. So if you are following along here, the difference between sin and mistake is very personal. It's not a fine line that we can clearly define with a culpability flowchart. Although I love the idea of culpability flowcharts, it's imperative that we understand they aren't perfect. One person might run a scenario through a culpability flowchart and label the behavior as sin that deserves retribution. Another human may run the same behavior through that chart and arrive at a mistake that deserves forgiveness. This brings up another important point. Whether we choose retribution or restoration as the appropriate response should never be determined by one person. There's way too much emotion and individualized interpretation to ever be effective. If you think about how our court system uses a jury to determine guilt or innocence, it's actually a great example of not letting one person determine if some behavior is a sin or a mistake. It's interesting how people judge behavior. Something I've noticed is that when one person runs a scenario through a culpability flowchart with workers that they knew well, they often end with recklessness. But when a group outside of the project runs that same scenario through the chart, it often ends in system-induced error. There are reasons for this that I see in others and my own judgments of people. When one safety person runs an individual's behavior through the chart, they may have a history of problems with the worker. That history, all those frustrations with past issues and hard conversations, that history influences the safety person and their needle shifts towards sin. But some outsider may clearly see the system influence because their judgment isn't clouded by historical emotional baggage. In the same way, I've seen this occur in my personal life. Judgments I've made about the behaviors of people who have hurt me, people that I've been very close to, are more harshly defined as sin than the judgments of other people who weren't as close to the offender. There have been many conversations I've had telling my story about the offender's behavior, wanting to vent, subconsciously looking for the justification of my anger. And then the other person starts talking forgiveness and understanding. It always catches me off guard. There's this weird feeling of knowing my judgmental limbic brain is influencing me to label the offender as a sinner. And this person I'm venting to is right to have remorse and sympathy of a fellow human being that they don't know very well. In those moments, I notice myself feeling a little guilty. It's as if I become aware that I am part of the mob chanting crucifixion, and the person I'm venting to is speaking the sympathetic words of Christ. If restoration is truly a corporate value, 
We can never allow one human to define the behavior as a sin or a mistake. In our personal lives, we should also seek the opinions of others on the judgments we make. We may find that our understanding, our forgiveness, our sympathy, all those things increase with a little curiosity in the opinions of others. Opinions that are not so emotionally attached to the event. If we go back to those three questions, we were supposed to ask, who was hurt? What do they need? And who is responsible for meeting those needs? We could tweak them a little for some self-reflection. How has this hurt changed me? Who was I before? And who do I want to become on the other side of this? Here's the thing. Everyone is hurt in an event. Some workers are physically hurt in construction incidents. Some supervisors are emotionally hurt when events happen under their watch. And the supposed offender that caused the incident, they are hurting too. I've had safety people and superintendents cry in front of me on more than one occasion. In no way do I think those people were weak. I know they were hurting. They may not have fit the typical label of victim or offender, but they still felt responsibility, remorse, and they were hurting. I've had workers that were labeled as offenders in events express a lot of anger. Underneath those angry words, they were hurting. Everyone involved in an event experiences some level of hurt, which means everyone involved in an event needs to experience some form of restoration. Restoration is something that we should address organizationally with systems in place to make sure it happens, but it is also a deeply personal thing. So back to those questions. How has this hurt changed me? Who was I before? And who do I want to become on the other side of this? There is another R word that comes with personal restoration, and that word is reinvention. When we restore ourselves, we reinvent ourselves. If I'm the safety manager, who was I before? How did I view safety performance, my job, my role? How did I conduct myself? But then one of my people got hurt. How has this hurt changed me, my view of the work world, and my role in it? What type of safety person do I want to become on the other side of this? What type of manager or supervisor? What type of coworker? How do I want to reinvent myself? You could also ask these questions from an organizational perspective. Who were we before this event? How has this hurt changed us? And who do we want to become? How did we view our safety process in the past? How has this incident changed our perspective? What type of organization do we want to become? And how are we going to make that happen? Whether we view restoration from a personal view or an organizational perspective, that is the end goal. How are we going to reinvent ourselves? 
I have a couple different friends that experienced a lot of hurt from loved ones with addiction issues. It's fascinating how both of them put a lot of energy into studying addiction, reading books, attending meetings, and trying to restore themselves in that process. But what they also did was help other people. There are two restorative things I notice about these friends. One, they have learned things to help other victims of addiction cope with their pain. The other thing I notice is how sympathetic they are to addicts, even though they have been hurt by addicts. These friends have been hurt by the addictions of their loved ones. Who did they become? People who help other victims and other addicts who are more forgiving toward the offenders. Not everyone thinks that way, and it seems most people don't. Most people that experience crimes, loss, hurt, pain, they tend to want retribution. They want the offender to pay for the harm they caused. But what seems so fascinating is that the people who have truly healed, the ones that have truly been restored, they grew. They grew their understanding of the event, be it a safety thing like a construction accident or a personal thing like divorce or addiction. They grew their understanding of the contributing factors to those events. They grew their understanding of what both victims and offenders go through in those events. And in turn, they became a conduit to help others they meet who experience similar events. And the most fascinating thing is that they have become more forgiving toward the offenders in an event. I think it's because they know. They know the contributing factors, but they also know that the offender is hurting too. Be it an addict, a cheater, or someone who broke a safety rule, they know that person is hurting too. And on the other side of restoration, they learned to forgive them. It's another year of new opportunities for personal growth. We tend to make resolutions at this time of year. Those reinventive resolutions should be part of personal growth and safety management. The more we seek to understand why people make the decisions they make, the more we view their actions as mistakes that should be forgiven instead of sins that need to be punished. The more forgiving and understanding we are, the more we move toward a restorative view of responding to events instead of one based solely on punishment and retribution. We can hold someone accountable by making them part of that restoration process. When we answer the questions, who was hurt? How has this hurt changed us? And who do we want to become? Remember, everyone was hurt. Everyone involved, from manager to victim to offender, was hurt. So who do we want to become? We want to become restored individuals and restored organizations. We want to have more information so we can be more forgiving, more understanding, and more helpful to people we meet in the future who go through similar experiences. 
Yes, we want people to be held accountable for their actions, but we also want them to become better people. Every bad experience we have is an opportunity to grow our wisdom. When we do the learning work from bad experiences, we eventually help others in the future who go through similar events, be they victims or offenders. Maybe a great resolution for 2024 is to focus more on restoration, both at work and at home. Have a beautiful, restorative day. Hey there. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave me a review. If you want to connect further, reach out at leaderthink.com.